AC and Evers, before we get started, I'm bringing back the exchange of a written review for editing coaching. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, written review, I will edit and coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words. When the review publishes, send a screenshot to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll start a dialogue. Also, this is for new reviews posting from December 2023 to when I end this promotion. This is like a $100 value, so if I were you, I'd totally do it. And two people are already doing it, so pretty cool. Also, here's a shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. If you visit athleticbrewing.com, as I do, use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, and you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money, merely celebrating a great product. Skip the hangover, dude. Skip it. I think part of it is me understanding that there is no one path in this writing world. Being able to look at myself and say, these are things that I want to personally accomplish in my writing life. And if they are not on the the straight and narrow of what publication success looks like, that's okay. And so that, that freed me up to pursue different avenues of writing. It freed me up to pursue submitting places that I didn't think that I had the, the chops to submit to. Hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Athena Dixon returns. She's the author of The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and her latest is The Loneliness Files, published by Tin House and edited by Hanif Abdurraqib. Yeah, I know. Athena's work has appeared in Narratively, Lit Hub, and Hippocampus Magazine. She's been a presenter at AWP, Hippocamp, and The Muse, and The Marketplace. She's a testament to being an accomplished writer and editor, while also holding down a day job. She is real inspiration. You know the deal. Head to brendanomera.com for show notes and to sign up for the monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. I got several nice emails regarding the latest rager. Subscribe to the newsletter, or don't. It's up to you. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Also, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or not. It's up to you. I'm the only host in the world who so much as gives you the option of saying no. That said, you should totally do it. In this episode, Athena talks about being okay with the plateau. Ah, where to find these residencies and shit. I I beats the hell out of me. I I suddenly I look out there and like so and so is touting like I got this resident I'm like holy shit where how do you even know about it uh throat clearing editing other people's work without muting their voices and how Athena writes authoritatively yet quietly really rich stuff man so that's what we're gonna do we're gonna kick it over to Athena Dixon here we go seeing Everett Of late, you know, I I find that my um, you know my pet peeve list keeps growing and growing, and uh, <laughs> and one of them is like this over fetishization of like routines and like artist routines or writing routines, yeah. and uh, you know, do, do, at what point do you find them either helpful or a hindrance to the development of, like, say, your practice? 
Um, for me, it's a hindrance. And it took me a long time to kind of step outside of the idea or being married to the idea of a routine and a, a kind of like a writer's life. Because my life, like I imagine a lot of people um, who write, my life is very much in flux. And so you have like a full-time day job, you have writing time, you have editorial work, you have speaking, you have like personal life stuff. And so there for me, I had to like divest myself of this idea of writing routine and like find something that fit for me. So a combination of input and output. Also being very honest when I talk to other writers about, I think it does us a disservice to kind of buy into the idea of a routine. And when I say buy into the idea of routine, doesn't mean that there aren't things that I kind of normally do when I'm actively approaching the page, but knowing that there's grace there to not have to be married to that idea. Yeah, I remember a time when I was very much, this is probably in the neighborhood of 8, 10, maybe even a little more than that years ago, of really being almost obsessed with other people's routines, thinking that it would give me this, the leverage mm-hmm. I needed to get to get more done and be more productive, yada, yada, yada. And um, I'm like yeah. almost embarrassed for that former version of myself. But uh, and so I've just tried to uh, get away from that. Is it, you know that that's a that's a shame I carry, small one, uh, of the many shames. But uh, for for you, like with, with your artistic <laughs> development, when you look back, are there things you're like, oh man, I'm really uh, upset that I was so obsessed with that. I wasted so much time on that. I think that I was really, really obsessed with being a genre-specific writer Mm. because I thought that made me a serious writer, that if I had this one genre that that's all I did, that I could like show that I was dedicated to it, that I could master it in some kind of way and then I could identify as that one thing. And I didn't see myself as kind of like a whole body writer. And for a long time, I just let my other interests starve because I thought that I had to be this one thing. And for me, that was being a poet. Like that was all I ever identified as. And I knew that there were other things that I wanted to write and other avenues that I wanted to explore. But I was so married to the idea that as a serious writer, I had to be one thing. And that was going to get me like on the map in some kind of way. And I think that in kind of conjunction with that, I was very, very married to the idea that I had to hit these particular milestones in order to be serious. Mm. So I had to get a degree, which I ended up getting the degree. I had to have an agent. I had to have these certain publications. I had to kind of divest from doing my open mics and my spoken word because that wasn't serious enough to be a a serious poet. And so I was putting all these roadblocks in there, trying to make myself be a writer without realizing that I was a writer. I was just kind of putting myself into this very narrow box. And it took a lot of creative and personal work to get beyond that. I love that you've used the the term divest uh, a couple times. And I, I think mm-hmm. uh, as we progress, it's like we try to, we accumulate so much and then it becomes, it becomes too, it becomes burdensome. And, and, and what are, mm-hmm. what are some things that you can point to that you have divested from that has made you feel lighter and, and pointed you in a better direction? I think part of it is me understanding that there is no one path in this writing world, being able to look at myself and say, these are things that I want to personally accomplish in my writing life. And if they are not on the the straight and narrow of what publication success looks like, that's okay. And so that, that freed me up to pursue different avenues of writing. It freed me up to pursue submitting places that I didn't think that I had the, the chops to submit to. Um, it freed me up to just enjoy the act of writing a little bit more. I've learned to stop taking my writing as seriously because I was taking it so seriously that I was sucking the joy out of it, that it was, it was like a job 
versus kind of like a skill that I was continuously developing. And so by letting myself enjoy the act of writing a little bit more, um, while still being very serious about trying to get better at it, but just enjoying the act and the creation of it, it made me feel so much better and allowed me to kind of see the, the creative world in a, a lot brighter space. Yeah, and, and, and a, a writer's path or an artist's path is so uh, singular and individualistic, um, maybe more mm-hmm. so than it ever has been in the past. There might have been more well-worn paths in the past that you could maybe traverse and be like, okay, this is a logical progression going in this direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine in, in the face of someone who might have like ask you for advice and you've said, you know, just said you realize that you're kind of surrendered to your own individual path. You know, what counsel would you offer for someone trying to get on their path? The first step that I took to kind of get to that point was I had a real conversation between myself personally and a friend of mine who's a fiction writer. And we had a phone call one day and we sat down and we said, okay, we're both trying to get a foothold in this industry, but what are we trying to to gain by getting into this industry. And so we had a real conversation about what we thought our lives would look like, like what we expected our success to be, what were the milestones we wanted to hit personally outside of what we were expected to hit. And if we could reach those particular goals, then we felt like we had our foothold in the world. And so it really was a very tangible thing. I know this is the kind of press I want to be published with. I know that this is the kind of um, creative work that I want to put into the world. This is what I don't have the ability or the, the the mindset to handle. And I'm not going to put myself in these situations where I'm harming myself creatively in order to meet this goal. And so that was the very first step was like to have an honest conversation with yourself about where you think you fit in the larger scope of publishing and in a creative community. Because sometimes the idea of being a writer is very limiting if you don't have those conversations with yourself. So have like a conversation about what you actually expect versus what is expected of you from the external world. Yeah. And that, that can lead to, I, I, for one, I think that's, that's really brilliant and that, that you had, uh, you know, someone who you could, um, you know, have that conversation, that dialogue with, and I imagine that was very clarifying for you and for your Mm -hmm. friend as well. Um, and just the, the nature of our, society or even you know creatively or whatever you know there's that whole hedonic adaptation to that that whole treadmill of keeping up with the joneses of never feeling like you have enough and how have you approached that hedonic adaptation whether it's just like okay i want to be in this press you know published with tin house that's amazing that's like a great Mm -hmm. publishing house and i imagine that was on your publishing bucket list and now you've now you've earned that it's like okay how do you maybe sit with that and be like content with that instead of be like, okay, now the, the bigger and better now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say that Tin House is on my list, but I didn't think it would ever happen. <laughs> so I'm still in this little weird space where I'm like, this is actually a real thing that's going on right now. But I think for me, what it was is after I had that conversation was really saying personally and creatively, where are you comfortable and allowing myself to be okay with being in that that comfortable space. And so for me, it was, I know the kind of stuff that I write and the kind of voice that I'm developing is going to fit in certain places. And so if I can have my work published in those places, whether it be an individual essay or a book as a whole, if I can have my work published there and they might want to be, they might want to publish multiple pieces, or I might have multiple books with the same press or a similar level press. I'm good with that. That I know for me, for example, I don't think that I'll ever be published 
like in a big five. That's not one of my goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nothing that I'm pursuing because I know my writing and my voice will probably have to change in ways that I'm not comfortable with in order to fit that parameter. I know that in terms of being hands-on with the press is going to be a lot different. And I like being able to have say-so and hands-on um, experience with the press itself. And so having these conversations with myself about not only creatively where I'm, where I'm comfortable, but personally where I'm comfortable. Like I always joke with friends, writer friends, that I'm okay with being known. I don't want to be famous. Mm-hmm. And so as long as I can be known and people who are, exist in my creative community know the kind of work that I can do and I get asked to do things, I'm okay with that. Um, so it's really finding that balance of, reaching the goal and being comfortable if that's the plateau. I'm like, I'm fine with the plateau. I don't have this like ultra competitive spirit where I have to be like the the talking head of a generation in order to be successful. I'm like if my books come out and people resonate with them and I can speak and I can edit and I can be comfortable creatively, I'm still growing, of course, but I'm, I'm okay with that. What are some uh, milestones that are on your on your corkboard, for lack of a better place of posting them? Um, I do have a whiteboard awesome. in my office that changes every year. <laughs> so um, I change the, the creative goals every year. So for the current year, I have three. Um, the first one has been the same for the last like four years, which is a, to land an agent. That's just something I have not been able to accomplish yet. And landing an agent for me was part of that conversation where it was like, it's not because I feel like I have to necessarily have an agent to be a, a serious writer, but because personality wise, I know that I need a person who's going to go to bat to me, for me in ways that mm. I can't because of my personality. So having an agent, um, it's always having a project in flux. Like I've been working on a new book since like October of last year, even though an active pursuit of this book is going on. Um, so always having a project in the works that I'm currently excited about. So I always have something that like I can escape into, but also if somebody asks me, I'm like, hey, by the way, I have another manuscript in the way. Also finding ways that I can do editorial work because that's another way that I kind of refill my own creative well is working on other people's books because I can see entry points. I can see how trends are going and, and keeping my eyes fresh. So when I approach my own work, I have the ability to see something that I may not have seen before. So I always keep like a running list of goals and just swap out every year, except for the agent thing. That's always at the top of the list. Nice. And when you're doing editorial uh, coaching and editing, uh, stuff of that nature, uh, how do you uh, approach that uh, in, in a way that maintains the, the core ethos of the individual writer without you like trespassing on them? Um, I'm always right. When I write my responses to my clients, I'm very much, in that very first paragraph, I'm like, these are suggestions. They're not even, I don't even consider them like revisions. I call them points of consideration mm-hmm. because they're only for you to think about. And if you choose to push back against them, that's fine. And I'm, I'm very clear in saying that to people when I edit their work, because I don't want them to think that I'm an authority that's telling them what they need to do in order to sell a book or to make it quote unquote mm-hmm. better. I'm just saying as a, a reader who has had a pause for this particular thing, I'm telling you this is where you may want to look. I'm also very adamant in telling my my readers, I'm sorry, my, my clients that your job is not to me, it's to your readers. And if you're writing to a very specific voice, a very specific region, a very specific subject matter or content, your concern is to make sure that information that you're conveying is clear to the people that you're writing towards, which, which your audience is telling you. I'm just telling you as a flat-footed reader or editor, 
these things may be a hangup for a, a small portion of your audience. And maybe you want to consider that, but I do everything that I can to make them understand that it's just me as a fresh set of eyes. It's not me telling you what you have to do. It's just that you might want to consider these small tweaks, but my job as editor is never to come in and sway somebody's voice or to sway their content in a way that I think is sellable or publishable it's just to make the work that you've given me the best it can possibly be through collaboration mm, i like that i i view doing editorial work to kind of like um like a personal trainer or something in a gym too mm -hmm. it's just like you know we're gonna if if all goes according to plan is like in a little while you, you might not need me ever again you know you'll be armed yeah. with the right skills and tools to be able to I don't know, just level up. And then if you want me to come back, you know, if you just need that little voice in your corner to towel you off, yeah. like, yeah, come come on back. But ideally, it's it could be like a mini MFA if done well. Yeah. Like I have like the letters that I usually give my clients are split into like the overview sections, which I think your book is about or your project is about based on reading it. And then the next section is the things I think you're doing really, really well that you might want to mimic in other parts of the book. And then it goes into points of consideration, places where I really have like pauses and I'm not quite sure if what you thought is what you put on the page. And then the last thing is our suggested revisions, but not required revisions, like things that you might want to circle back to. So I try to give them like, these are the things that you really, really are doing well. And so this is maybe where you want to focus your, your attention in terms of revision or considerations. And they seem to like it. I've had a couple of repeat clients. So oh, that's great. And, you know, a little while ago, you were just talking about, you know, skill and developing your skill as a writer and how that's ever kind of ever evolving, ever, ever developing. And, uh, you know, for, for you, what is some some of like the best investment you've ever made? And that can be money or time uh, just into your own continuing education and development as a as a writer. Uh, yeah, as a writer. I think the first thing I did that I'm, I'm glad that I was in a position and continue to be in a position where I can go to writing workshops and conferences, um, specifically writing workshops. I had never gone to a writing workshop prior to like 2017 outside of my MFA program, um, specifically for prose because my MFA is in, in poetry. But um, it wasn't until 2017 that I started applying to writing workshops. And those like one little, those one week shots of like other people's writing and reading different things that I've never been exposed to before was like the biggest catalyst for me paying closer attention to my own voice and paying attention to how I was approaching the page versus how I thought I was approaching the page. I was like the biggest lesson that I got from one of those in particular. I thought I was doing kind of one thing, but I really wasn't. So spending that time going to those writing workshops and kind of honestly as a working writer hoarding all my vacation time so I could go to those writing retreats hmm. um, and not taking time during like summer breaks and stuff just so I could go. And then also making sure in terms of like no, no cost things, joining a writing group, finding a writing group that really fit me and was supportive was one of the best free things that I did because it's accountability. Like we meet and we do writing sprints on Zoom twice a week. We have in-person meetups. We live in different, like most of them live in Baltimore. I live in Philadelphia, but we have meetups where we meet up a couple times a year in person and just fellowship together. Mm. Um, we 
I'm like editing a fiction project for one of those writers right now um, because again, she needs this outside view, but I also, I'm getting more comfortable with fiction. So joining like a writing group of, of like-minded people, especially people from different backgrounds, different ages, different races and ethnicities and gender expression, that is like one of the best things because you get so many different views of your work and you get the same thing to somebody else. And I, I'm glad you brought up the the kind of seeking out those opportunities and those kind of workshop type experiences. And I think a lot of people, I, I know when I, when I see some people post online and be like, Oh, I'm going to this such and such retreat. I, and I'm mm-hmm. like, I've never heard of half of these. And I'm like, so I wouldn't even know to apply. And so yeah. where do you find and curate those, uh, those activities, you know, those kind of things. So, um, you know, so you can apply to those and maybe, usher other people towards those opportunities yourself? Um, I come across a lot of them on social media. Um, One place that has a really, really comprehensive list of fellowships for both literature, arts, and film is Bomb Magazine. They have a massive list of just like fellowships and residencies that they update. I think it's maybe quarterly or once every couple of months. Um, But that's a really good place. There is... um, Poets and Writers, they actually have a list of residencies and fellowships sometimes. There is also, in terms of like individual submissions and different kind of like smaller residencies and workshops, Instagram account called Galleyway, which publishes almost daily different places to submit and to apply to. And they also do like a monthly roundup. And I will say, that I'm saying that it was all seriousness with Google. (laughs) Like I'm very good at just Googling writing residencies summer 2024 and just seeing what pops up but yeah bomb has a really good list of writing residencies and fellowships to apply for oh nice yeah that's uh i'm always this is surprised like damn where do people find all these things now you know not that i would necessarily apply to them myself but it's all you're always wondering i'm like wow there's it seems like there's a lot out there and then it's one thing to know to turn over (laughs) every stone but it's one thing to not know the stones exist yeah also look at the um national park service they have fellowships with the national park services where you could get funding and they give you a place to stay and you can like live in one of the national parks essentially for however long to work on a project and they go they that happens multiple times in a year like i applied for one in hawaii i did not get it it was like in the volcanic the volcanic park but they exists everywhere um but that's another place i think a lot of people don't know about to apply for nice and uh i I gotta ask what was the experience like with the loneliness files and uh having it been like selected by hanifa abdurraqib you know he's such a brilliant writer and poet and advocate and community (laughs) member himself and uh so what was that uh experience like for you um it was it still doesn't seem like a real thing yeah but it was it's pretty amazing. Like I, I'm very grateful because he's one of my favorite writers and to get like a message like, Hey, are you working on a book? We possibly want to get this book going for a place that you never thought that you would have a book (laughs) published through was like kind of surreal, but he's very, very, just as much as like you see outwardly facing in terms of like him being very generous with his time and his creative energy. It's the very same thing with editorial work. We had a, a zoom, and one of the first things that he said was like, what's your greatest vision for your book? Um, I want to help you kind of get 
that into the world. And that his job as an editor was kind of to give me these soft guardrails in order to get that book to that place. And his job wasn't to kind of like take over my book. And he was very, very true to that editorial style. Um, I felt like I had lots of good guidance, but also had the ability to push back against things. I wasn't required or expected to take all edits. And I think that the book ended up being something that we were both very happy with. Um, I was a little starstruck at first. <laughs> I will say that <laughs> because it's him, but I'm glad that like he, his personality and his editorial style and just his writing style. Yeah. He was just really kind as an editor and as a writer. And even after the book came out, like the day of the book debut, he just like called to check up to see how I was doing. And he's just a very, very good writer community member and like just a person in general. So I'm very glad that he helped like usher this book into the world. Yeah. And as a uh, editorial consultant, editor yourself, I'm sure with your clients, you, uh, you know, you, you help turn some lights on for them, make them see things they haven't Mm -hmm. seen before. Uh, And and so likewise, when you were working with Hanif, uh, what lights did he turn on for you? Mm -hmm. I think he, in Mm -hmm. a very gentle Mm way, kind of brought my eyes to my throat clearing that, Sometimes I get so wrapped up in the construction of the sentence or the paragraph because it sounds nice that I'm burying the thing that I'm really talking about. And so there was one particular essay that we cut, like, I think it was originally like six or seven sections and we cut it down to three, I believe it was four. So we cut out a lot of words because it wasn't that, and like he said, this stuff is well-written, but the heart of what you're trying to say is like in section three. And so it was very eye-opening for me to realize that it's not that the writing itself is quote-unquote bad it's just that it doesn't have a place here that you're burying these images that you're building you're burying the story for the sake of good writing and good writing is not to be there just to be there it has to have a purpose it has to move something forward and so I was very glad that he kind of he he framed it in that way that it made me see that I need to learn how to like scale back sometimes yeah, that's a really astute point. And and even though all the, those sections that were probably, you know, just laborious to, to write and mm-hmm. probably had some utility, even though in the end it wasn't for the greater service of, of the piece, even though they were they were ultimately cut, they were still very much uh, of use to yeah. get those very good sections. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, I think... Uh an editorial thing that I'm thinking about because I tend to edit as I write. And so it was like a whole body editing at the end versus me saying, oh, I've spent so much time constructing this, therefore it's edited. Like, no, it still needs work at the end. And so I was glad to be able to see that from the outside. And uh, earlier in a conversation, you talked about the entry points. And uh, so with the loneliness files, what was your entry point into, into this collection? Um, it was the story of Joyce Carol Vincent, but I came across her because of like the loneliness that I was feeling in terms of being in this apartment by myself during the COVID, um, first wave of COVID in 2020. And so I have joked in a couple of prior talks that I started watching video game walkthroughs as a way to have voices in my apartment. Cause I live here alone with no pets, no partner. My family is very far away. And the algorithm ended up showing me videos about mysterious disappearances. And um, I came across Joyce's story and it was 
for the first time, it was like almost like in some ways looking in a mirror. And I was very, very afraid and very curious about her because I realized that that could be me, this educated, upwardly mobile, professional woman who just disappeared from the world and nobody realized that she was gone. And so I got very, very curious about how I ended up in the the space that I was at that time in 2020. And so I started exploring all the ways that loneliness and isolation manifested in my life. So what decisions I made to get to where I was and what decisions were made for me to get me where I was. And kind of like now that I realized I was in the midst of this disconnection and this loneliness, how was I going to get out of it or what was useful about that loneliness? Several years ago, uh, when I was living in an apartment uh, alone with just uh, my dog, Smarty, uh, and I would I was working sports writer hours, so you're talking like four to midnight, mm-hmm. and um and I would get home, and it was there, it was this kind of very desolate feeling, and what I would often do was uh, I would watch episodes of The Simpsons with DVD commentary on. Mm-hmm. And it was the chorus of the writers of that episode on. So it it felt like I had like some friends to watch a funny episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. So I like it's I it definitely was something that I used to appease a certain measure of loneliness at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, the video game walkthroughs that I watched were horror video games because mm-hmm. the person watch, playing the video game would stop and start, and there would be like a lull of conversation, then it would get loud, and then it would get quiet, and it very much mimicked for me being in an office in a way. And that's what I was used to five days a week. And so it was an easy way to hear other human voices without having to force other people to be like on Zoom or FaceTime with me all the time. And was over the course of the inspiration of this book and the writing of it, you know, what was there ever a time where you were able to make peace with loneliness or is it always something more adversarial? Um, I think I made peace with it in some ways. Um, I did my best to sprinkle some like, some moments of joy in the book. Um, I very much enjoy my space. I very much enjoy Mm -hmm. some measure of disconnection because I think for me, it helps me recharge. There's a running joke with me and my friends about my people meter. And so when we go out, I'll put my hand next to my forehead and that means that I've reached my level of like social interaction and it's time for us to start wrapping up and go. Um, And so I enjoy some level of disconnection. I enjoy some level of aloneness. but writing the book helped me realize that I was hiding some in some ways. Um, it helped me determine like what parts of my isolation and disconnection weren't because I was being this independent person who could handle this. It was me hiding from certain things and certain fears. And so I don't think that I ever, by the time I got to the end of the book, I don't think that I got to any kind of resolution of it or there's no, there's no real solution for it. It helped me determine what part of it was useful for me. And personally, like I need to recharge. I need creative space. I need personal space. Um, I need social space, but also realizing that I tend to use disconnection and which leads into this idea of loneliness to hide from things that I'm not ready to face and trying to make myself be better at facing those things versus trying to force connection when I don't necessarily need it. Uh, particularly, uh, sort of haunting or even terrifying aspect of the the book was when you came across a, a another writer who was talking about you know just his parents being older and she's mm-hmm. like if you just like doing the math of the time we have left he's like i might only have like i don't know 
15 more visits of yeah. uh, seeing my parents for uh, before they die and i was like oh my god when you put the stark numbers on, on mm-hmm. it at f- with those concurrent adult lives you're like oh my god like, that that was th- that struck that like really hit my chest like a sledgehammer I, uh, what effect did that have on you um it terrified me um and it really spurned me into questioning what i was doing like i I think that I lived under this illusion of like hyper independence for a very long time, which was really just me being afraid of not only dying alone, but almost in some ways preparing myself for the end of my, 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 my parental line, like understanding that my parents are getting older. And like, if I'm at a distance, it's going to be a little easier to deal with. But for me, it was like, Athena, what are you doing? You, I mean, I know it's like a seven hour drive, but you don't, you can do that more than once in a year. You could fly there. And I think it was the first time I realized like the mortality of my parents and that I am making conscious decisions to distance myself before I need to, in order to protect myself from that fear of them not being here anymore. Um, and so I've now actively started thinking about whether or not I'm going to move home or if I don't move home, how can I like be hybrid like part of the time in the city and spend more time back in Ohio with my family as a way to kind of reconnect. And, um, but no, it terrified because I would never thought about like 15 years, 15 visits is just nothing. Yeah. And those visits, it's not like it's, it could be a long weekend, mm-hmm. maybe a week. And that's it. That's it. So you're seeing someone for maybe, you know, your parents or something for five to seven days out of 365. Yeah. And then you, if you really do the math and extrapolate it over 15 years, like let's just say five times 15, like I am only going to see these people for 75 more days for the rest of their lives yeah. like that. That is even more terrifying. It is. It really is. And so like part of that too is now there's small things that we've done like as a family. Um, now we're making sure that we're texting every morning and talking to my parents on the phone a lot more than I was and trying to go home a lot more than I was before. Just small things that like didn't seem important necessarily because I'm, uh, there's this, uh, this illusion in my head. And I think for a lot of people that you have time. Like, and yeah. you, you truly don't. There, There's a sentence I highlighted that I, you know, of the several I highlighted that I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on. And uh, you, you wrote, uh, you know, what is the legacy we each leave behind, if not some lingering performance of how we lived? This is loneliness of another kind. And I just wanted to get you to maybe expand on that. I really love that, that pairing. I think part of that is, for me, thinking about that is, stepping outside of the performance of my life. Like if I was to to leave this earth right now, what would be my legacy? My legacy would be Athena was a good daughter. She was a good sister. She was a good friend. She was a good employee. But that would be it for a lot of people, that there would be no real understanding of me as a person because the performance of those things is at some point was more important than who I really was. Like, so what is the, the the legacy that I want to leave behind? Do I want to leave behind a legacy of being a complicated person who did her best to love the people in her life? Her life? Um, was she a person who did her best to leave some kind of creative legacy on the earth? Was she a person who was flawed, but she left the people in her, her scope a little bit better 
by the time she left the earth. And so I wanted to be able to step beyond that performance and have a greater and a deeper legacy. Um, and I, I think that was one of my fears too. Like I think I write several times in a book about the idea of not leaving a legacy of being afraid to die alone because of the performance that I've put up for most of my life and always being okay of always being connected, even if I was like hollow on the inside. And so it's just a matter of like, how do we step beyond that performance and leave an actual legacy that we want to leave on the earth? Yeah. And kind of echoing that there's a, you know, another sentence where you say, I know it's easier to appear to be what everyone expects than to show them who you truly are. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there's that performance aspect of it. And then of, of course, if you were to, I don't know, to, to, to disappear, to pass away, and then mm -hmm. you would be left with that. You would maybe leaving behind that the a, a hollowness that it was a, a version of yourself that mm -hmm. uh, you were afraid to, you know, leave behind. And people would be like, "Oh man, like I, I feel like I didn't really get to know her, know her as right. well as I should have." Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I think too. That's probably the the biggest kind of blessing in writing the two books so far has been, at least for my family and friends, a lot of them have come to me and said, oh, we didn't know these things were true about you, or we didn't know these experiences happened to you, or we didn't know that you felt that way. Um, even on the book tour, um, a couple of my aunts and uncles came to one of their readings, and they were like, we would have never guessed that you would have got up in front of this group of people and talked, because we've always seen you as this super shy, very quiet, kind of meek person. And to see you up in front of these people talking and having conversations and laughing and stuff is just so new to them. So at bare minimum, I can say that now that legacy has shifted in a way that people in my intimate circle who have never seen the totality of me now get to see it. And they've gotten to experience it through the books, at least. So I'm somewhat successful. I'm still working on it, but I'm a little bit more <laughs> successful than I was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And then there's, it, it kind of gets to the point too, where over the course of your life, based on how perhaps you were parented, and I just mean in general, mm -hmm. it's just like how you're parented. Oftentimes you, you're uh, an avatar for how they view you. And over time you just kind of, you almost play a role mm -hmm. for how they view you. Cause you don't want to like color outside those, those boundaries of how mom views me or how dad views me or how, wh who I am to how they've colored me. I need to then mm -hmm. sort of play that role. Is that something you've experienced? It's definitely something I've experienced and I still, still do really. I think so because I've, I spent so much time in my life trying to stay on like this very straight and narrow good girl path of being like, you follow this particular path, you do all the right things, you say all the right things, you gain all these accomplishments, and then life is supposed to be like perfect and great. And so in the course of living that kind of straight and narrow path, everybody saw me as that. They're like Athena is very smart. She went to college, she got her degree, she got married, she did this, she did that. And so I was just this kind of example of what you're supposed to do. And so it was very difficult for me to be like, hey, by the way, outside of the shininess, like there's a lot going on behind the surface. And it took me, honestly, up until 2020 when the first book came out. So three years roughly for my family to know that that illusion that we all believe from both internally and externally. Cause like I gave them no reason not to believe all that stuff was true about me. And they had no reason to question that it wasn't true. Um, but it took well into my adulthood for me to say, no, by the way, 
XYZ time when I was in college and getting good grades and being in honors college, I was like on the verge of like flunking out of school one semester because I just mm-hmm. couldn't handle it. So it was a combination of me starting off in that being that person at some point, like for my parents and my sister, being the very respectable, responsible oldest daughter, and then not allowing myself to show them another part of me as I was growing. And so I just kind of stunted the growth of our relationship in a way when I hit like my late teens. And then I went my entire adulthood for the most part without showing them that I had changed. Um, But now they, they realize and they, and a lot of them have been like, Hey, we got to do a better job of checking in on you and making sure that you're okay. Now that we know that you're not okay, but it took a very long time to allow myself to step outside of that view and then to give them that view of me. Yeah. There's a moment in the book too. I think when you were feeling particularly down and really kind of collapsing in on yourself. And Mm -hmm. I, I believe you're, you know, your, your dad went and just, he came and got you. Yeah, And I, I thought that was a really, mm-hmm. that was a really like tender moment of just like, you know, I'm not going to wait for, I'm not going to make her ask for this. I'm just going to go and do mm-hmm. this and, you know, bring my daughter home and, you know, give her, give her the love she, she needs. She clearly needs right now. She's, but she's not telling us explicitly. Yeah. My sister actually, when she read the book, she texted me and she's like, I've made it to page 29 and I've already cried. And I'm like, why? And she's like, cause there's a scene where you tell dad that you're tired. And she's like, I can imagine exactly how you said it. And it made me cry because I realized like how tired you really were. And I and I'm I'm glad that now, at least, if I say that, I get a little bit extra care. So they're like, oh, what kind of tired are you? Are you just physically tired <laughs> yeah. today? Or are you like emotionally tired? So I don't want to be in that place again, but thankfully, um, now there's a red flag for my family. <laughs> well, it's it, what's kind of great, and you kind of alluded to this with um, you know, your first book uh, and, and this one. That in a way, it was it's kind of like a Rosetta Stone for for you. Like, here's how you know, here's a way to translate me. Here's me being a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a pathway into my internal life that you otherwise just didn't know about, and now it's like they you kind of have given them a, a key to 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 you in a sense. Yeah. I think so. Um, and I'm glad that it, in, in a way, I'm glad because it brought my two worlds together. My writing, like my family has always known I've been a writer and and I've been like, even when I was like self-publishing little poetry chat books back in the day, they were very aware of me doing all the writing stuff. But this is the first time that they've been a lot more hands-on with it. So it kind of brought together a space where I felt very comfortable in expressing myself to like, and, and the, my family and friends together. So now they have the ability to step into my world a little bit more. And now I have the time and the ability to express to them, this is how I navigate the world in a creative way that I might not be able to always verbally say it, but creatively you're going to find out the truth. Mm. And I like, I love towards the end, there's this great little passage where you write, I think in some ways my book has become about death death of ideas and dreams and plans and all the minutia used to build a life. I believe when I'm true to my actual feelings and not putting on a brave face, that life is a series of tiny deaths. Morbid on the surface, sure, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, in what way is, you know, have you experienced life as a series of tiny deaths and come to embrace that? Um, I think part of it is like, 
allowing parts of myself that I think have hindered me to kind of die away and to wither. I have joked with friends and family for a very long time that I've had 17,000 different versions of myself. And some of them I held on to a little bit too long because they were comfortable in the pain, like I knew what to expect. And so those tiny deaths, some of them were spectacular deaths. Some of them were very tiny, but those tiny deaths, like the tiny death of not remembering a particular date brings me joy now because I know that that thing doesn't affect me anymore or the tiny joy of being able to throw away a small thing. Um, All these little intimate things that I held onto for so long and I kept alive because they were a part of me that I thought I needed to anchor me to the world. I'm okay with letting go now. And then two, like I think I read that that next part of that passage is about like that each day is each new day is a death, the morning of the death, the death of the day before something similar. Um, And it's the same thing. I'm like, I've learned that it's okay to allow what came before to die. It's okay to mourn it, but it's not okay to dwell in it. Um, And I've been able to find joy in reinventing and relearning and in some ways learning for the first time what brings me life and what brings me joy. And it's okay to let those things die that don't serve that that greater purpose. And and, and given that you've got these these two books under under your belt now and you're you know you've got a work in progress presumably from uh mm-hmm. that you've been working on the last year or so uh mm-hmm. so getting to that point of the the purpose you were talking about like what is your what what is your purpose now as a as a person as a creative person you know going forward with banking having banked the experience you already have i think my 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 biggest goal is to continue to kind of be a voice for people who I think are very similar to me. I think that I write very quietly and I know that sometimes in our industry, it is difficult to get a platform or a spotlight for things that aren't as emotionally sensational. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. Loneliness and voicelessness and invisibility aren't hot topics. They don't really they're not like selling books like that. And so my my goal from the books I've written in the past to the books I'm currently working on is to always give a platform and a voice for people who have these experiences that are a lot quieter and finding ways to make them interesting enough to get a spotlight, but not trade on some kind of creative bloodiness in order to get those things put into the world. Um, and personally, like my personal creative like ideas are, I'm very interested in learning now because I've written two books about being voiceless and invisible and loneliness. Now I'm working on work that is looking at the things about myself that I want to highlight, that I've never gotten to highlight, that I've tamped down because of the feelings in the first two books. And so now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm writing a lot more free and bright work. And I'm hoping that um, it fits in the, the the trippage of the books that I've written. Um, but yeah, I just I've always wanted to use my platform as a way to give people who feel voiceless and invisible and quiet um, space to be seen and heard. Yeah, and just because it's quiet, and that is really that's a really great characterization, I would say, of of your work too. And it and it doesn't mean. Uh, necessarily like demure or mm-hmm. trying to hide there's a confidence behind the quietude that you bring I think that's true I think quiet sometimes gets misconstrued 
as being like meek or afraid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just think that quiet means that when I have something to say, I want to say it. And hopefully because I'm not always loud and bombastic, when I say it, you pay attention. And I, like, I, I joke too with friends that I always call myself like the background music of life, <laughs> that <laughs> the background music is very important. It helps us move through the world, but it doesn't get the most sensational views. People don't like stop in their tracks but it's always there it helps keep the world moving i'm like and that's what i think i'm like it's the things that we feel these feelings of isolation and loneliness and invisibility and voicelessness are important they they help and sometimes hinder how we navigate the world and i think that they need a voice and so quiet is not necessarily bad or or weak it's just i'm a little bit more measured in how i present what i have to say i love that well, Athena, this is uh, this is great to be able to have this conversation again. I'm so glad we were able to have a, another one of these at the release of The Loneliest Files. Um, as I bring these conversations down for a landing, I always love asking the guests for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And that can just be anything you're excited about. So uh, I'd extend that to you, Athena. Uh, what would you recommend for the listeners? I would recommend finding a good writing playlist and I have a recommendation for a YouTube channel that has really, really good playlists that can be up to three hours long. Oh, um, cool. His name is Isaac Varzin, V-A-R-Z-I-M. Um, he does everything from old school mixes to world music, and they're really, really good, and they're good writing music. Oh, I love it. Well, awesome. Athena, well, thank you so much for carving out the time to do this, and it was so great to to uh to have this conversation again i just uh i really appreciate the time and i wish you the best of luck and continued success with the book thank you so much for having me cool man cool dude thanks to athena for coming back on the show the name of her book again is the loneliness files is published by tin house go pick it up wherever you get your books Not all places are created equal. There are some much preferable places to get your books. You do you. I have so much to say and no energy to say it. So I'm just going to go for now, CNFers, okay? Stay wild. And if you can't do, interview. See ya.